Hi, I'm Bill the Counselor. Welcome to The Gentle Podcast, a place to learn new skills to repair wounded relationships and enrich great relationships. I'm a licensed professional counselor with over 40 years experience as a counselor and over 40 years experience being married. If you want to learn how to repair broken relationships, recover from damaging relationships, build new healthy relationships, or to enrich an existing relationship, this is the podcast for you. Hey, welcome to The Gentle Podcast, your place for relationship coaching to advance your relationships to a state of security, serenity, and satisfaction. I'm your host, Bill the Counselor. In today's episode, I'm going to be presenting an idea to you that I call Seasons of Relationship. And specifically, the relationship we'll be focusing on today is paired or couple relationship. I think this idea, or structure really, is useful in taking a long view of what is probably the most important relationship in people's lives, couplehood. I remember when I was a teenager and first getting interested in coupled relationships. Um, I lived in a neighborhood where there's a tiny church around the corner, and uh, there was this little old couple, a uh, cute little couple. They lived a few doors down from uh, the church. And each morning you could observe them uh, walking to church together, holding hands. And they would go in for the church service, and after the church service, they would, they would, um, uh, she would, she would take care of the candles, and he would take care of the missiles or the books in the pews. Uh, and then they would turn around and walk back home together. I remember thinking, you know, that they were cute. I remember using that word in my head. Wasn't that cute? And I was kind of mystified or amazed. How did, how did they, how did they keep their relationship so sweet for so long? How does that work? Look at them. I hope I can have something like that someday, I thought in my immature 14-year-old mind. I guess it was a good thought. I know it was a good thought. I didn't understand how a person could achieve that then, but, you know, I'm fortunate that I I pretty much achieved that in my life as I got older. But I'd I'd propose that we can gain some really important insights into couplehood by considering our lives together as having different seasons that can be traced and studied over time. Now, like uh, the real seasons of the year, sometimes uh, they can definitely overlap each other, just, uh, just like spring and summer kind of melt into each other, and summer into fall, and of course fall into winter, and then winter into spring again. It can be difficult sometimes to define at what point the season changes, and so it is also in relationship. But in hindsight, I think this tends to be much clearer to us, and there is value in looking uh, to the history of our relationship. As they say, hindsight's 20-20, right? And we can look back in our relationship to see the development of our relationship, and to some extent it helps us understand that we're either on a positive trajectory or we're on a negative trajectory. That can be very helpful when we discover that we might need to change paths or we might need to uh, learn new things 
or change our own character flaws in order to be happier and more satisfied in life. So let's take a look at these seasons as I describe them. The, the spring season, as I see it, is, I think, comprised of five different important elements. I'm going to call them attraction, infatuation, naive intimacy, and compatibility formation. And we're going to talk a little bit about what those mean. You know, we, we know from science uh, and physiology uh, that, that human beings' uh, emotions and uh, thoughts are profoundly affected by uh, the neurochemicals in our brain. In particular, for things like infatuation and attraction, uh, dopamine and serotonin uh, come into play. And uh, when, when we're uh, in the presence of someone that fits our criteria for attractiveness, you know, what type do you prefer, right? By the way, I think attraction, uh, our mature adult attraction, is really based on our experiences earlier, earlier in life. Yeah. I think probably most people develop who they're attracted to, their physical attractiveness criteria, probably by, I want to say, three, four years old. Yeah, I know. Doesn't that sound weird? Uh, nothing untoward about that. Like, like I remember, uh, uh, I'll just use myself as an example. Um, I remember uh, being in kindergarten, and uh, I had a little friend. Uh, her name was Leslie. And uh, the reason why I liked Leslie uh, was that she could wear, she wore a baseball cap, which was pretty unusual for girls in 1963. Uh, and she wore overalls. And boy, could she throw a ball. And she knew how to climb trees. And she had the most striking red hair that she braided. She braided her hair. And she was a good friend. I don't know whatever, what happened to Leslie uh, uh, in my life. I would, I'd love to be able to uh, know how she's doing and maybe see how her life went. Maybe she'd want to know how my life went. But I think I developed a definite preference at that time in my life for uh, female companions that could, uh, that could do things outdoors. Yeah. I certainly developed a preference for female companions with red hair. So if we fast forward, you know, in my life from age five uh, um, to about 1977, 78, in my freshman history class, uh, in walks a beautiful young woman with red hair. Ah, and uh, she became my wife eventually. So attraction, you know, takes place uh, based on the learning, the early learning uh, and experiences we have in our life. And, uh, and then infatuation, you know, the attraction, the initial attraction, it could go nowhere. You could be attracted to say, everybody's had this experience, huh? You walk over to somebody that looks attractive, uh, they open their mouth and the first three words out of their mouth, you're, you're starting to think, oh, no, 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 no. So it's not just physical attraction, obviously. There's more than that, you know. It's the person's personality, how they interact, right? Yeah. So uh, after the attraction, though, there's this potential for infatuation, and that's where the neurochemicals start coming in, right? We tell teenagers this all the time, don't we, right? 
just because you're infatuated with this young person or, you know, uh, the boy or the girl doesn't mean you're in love. It's just hormones. Yeah, well, it is hormones. It's things like dopamine and serotonin. When we're infatuated, right, we get a rush of serotonin or dopamine in our head, in our brain, and it feels really, really good. There's other neurochemicals, too, uh, that, that, that uh, make us feel light, make us feel excited. Not the least of which, by the way, is testosterone. When you're next to or near somebody that you're physically attracted to, that you're infatuated with, your testosterone rises in both men and women. And that accounts for that drive, of course, to touch or to do more than touch, which again is what we, uh, we give admonitions to teenagers about, don't we? It's not just teenagers, though. <laughs> that are attracted and get infatuated and then touch, is it? Adults too. You know, maybe we adults should uh, follow our own admonitions and be very careful. Infatuation usually lasts like uh, two, three months and then it begins to fade. Uh, and then other neurochemicals probably are going to take over at that point, Right. The neurochemicals uh, like uh, oxytocin, especially in women, and vasopressin, especially in men, it produces a bonding effect or an attachment effect. And the way those oxytocin and vasopressin, the way they spike up is when two people have sex together. So there we have it. You know, you're infatuated and then you have sex. So, so you have this infatuation that's very exciting, very light feeling, very wonderful, giddy feeling. And then you engage in sex with the person, and then you have bonding that takes place neurochemically, mentally, and you feel bonded. That's why we tell teenagers, right, or young people, infatuation isn't love. Because, it, But what, what do most people do, even adults, right? What adult you know, meets somebody, is attracted to them, infatuated with them, uh, and then who, who waits those two or three months to have sex, right? Unfortunately, a lot of people don't. They don't wait for the infatuation to end. And then you have a problem, right? One day the infatuation ends and you realize you don't especially even like this person, but now you're bonded to them because you've been having sex with the person. Yeah. So the, the springtime of relationship is one that's fraught with a lot of difficulties, a lot of dangers that we have to be aware of and, and have to pay attention to. Yeah. So... But if it all goes well, if all goes healthy, right, the attraction and the infatuation leads to what we call that naive intimacy. And by naive intimacy, I mean it's the initial contact you have a person, the initial getting to know the person. Uh, and along with the infatuation, the neurochemicals, it enhances that experience of intimacy. It even exaggerates it. You know, you remember being 14, right? You find somebody who's attractive and you talk to them. What do you talk about? You talk about who you both know. You talk about teachers and, you know, school activities, maybe church activities that you're both into. And that's, uh, you know, what band do you like, man? You know, and if it matches, there's this uh, kind of naive feeling of closeness. Uh, it certainly qualifies as, as intimacy, but it's not full mature intimacy, of course. And with, with uh, older couples, you know, people that are adults that move uh, beyond the uh, naive intimacy and beyond the infatuation, 
then there's a kind of uh, a compatibility formation that begins. I think compatibility is often overrated. I don't think you have to be uh, completely compatible with someone. I don't even think that's desirable. It's, it would be kind of boring if you were compatible in everything with a potential partner or with your partner. Uh, viva the difference, right? Viva la difference, right? Yeah, yeah. And so what compatibility formation really is, it serves a function. It, for, it serves a function for the, the two people to begin to exercise compromise skills and learn to practice those compromise skills, which is basically the getting along in life. You know, when you realize that uh, this person that you're absolutely in love with and you're passionate and you, 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 you want to commit to, uh, you realize that they have some characteristics uh, that you don't like so much. And, and you have some they don't like so much. And you kind of work it through, hopefully. Hopefully you do that uh, in a very direct way. You speak about it, but a lot of people don't. But it's the compromise skills and practice area that begins at that point. And then the transition from uh, spring to summer you know, the real prize of that is the commitment prize. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the point where uh, two people decide whether they really want to continue the relationship if it's going to be a long-term kind of thing. And uh, it, most people at that point, most couples at that point, are verbalizing that commitment in some way. You know, again, uh, adolescents do it in a naive way. You know, I like like you. I don't just like you. You remember that? Or we're going out, you know, I don't know where they go out to. They usually just meet at school, but they're going out. Or in my day, you know, we called it going steady, right? If, if you're as old as me, you might remember the going steady. And then, of course, in a more mature sense, engagement and then marriage. But it is really important at this transition at the beginning of summer to understand and learn about the fact that relationship is unilateral. And it needs personal autonomy as a means to balance the intense intimacy that's going on, the intense intimacy of a life shared so closely. Because if, if you don't have uh, enough autonomy in the relationship, somebody there is going to feel smothered. Yeah, they're going to feel too closed in, which can lead to problems. Um, or if there's too much autonomy, uh, the other person doesn't feel there's enough intimacy. They may not feel like they're in relationship. They might uh, feel unconnected to their partner or, or the often used phrase, um, you know, he or she is just not there for me, right? Yeah. So that, uh, that, that uh, transition, uh, it's important to learn those facts about balancing autonomy and intimacy. And we're, we're probably going to be doing a whole podcast on that in the future about how important it is uh, to balance autonomy and intimacy, how to achieve that balance, and uh, how to recognize uh, the elements of that. But commitment starts the summer season uh, with the negotiation of relational contracts that are spoken, unspoken, uh, and some of them even unconscious. You know, when you got, if you, you had a church marriage, you remember standing up and doing your vows, those uh, verbal contracts. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of other contracts that happen in life together. 
everything from you know uh, who does the grocery shopping, uh, you know, to uh, um, it's everybody's job to put the gallon of milk away after you use it, right? And we're unaware of those contracts until we bump into them, right? You know, the honeymoon is over. Right, you you realize there's things about this person or their behavior sets that you need to address. You need to talk about, uh, and if hopefully you have a way to do that, you know that is not hostile and not aggressive and not emotionally reactive, because if it is, you're going to start that cycle uh, that makes relationship really really difficult. But summer then proceeds into joint or mutual life goal setting. Uh, the young couple start thinking about their future, their careers. They start setting goals individually, hopefully, as well as together, understanding that uh, the key to couple growth is individual growth. Yeah. And hopefully there's a freedom. Hopefully there's enough autonomy for each individual to do that growth during the summer when you're young and you have the energy. Also in summer, there's a building or an increasing and a clarifying of other knowledge. You get to know your partner at a much deeper level, uh, notwithstanding these contracts. That's one of the ways, that's one of the routes to get to know your partner further, is to talk about contracts. Talk about the changes from year to year during the summer of your relationship. The dangers of summer are that uh, the relationship can become dry contentious, toxic, emotional reactivity starts happening. It might be even become common. The couple switches from a, a couple competition that's all very sweet and wonderful, like pleasing each other, being there for each other. But stressors begin to happen, which can uh, tempt the couple to begin to become emotionally reactive all the time. And that toxicity builds up and can be very dangerous to relationship. So a lot of, a lot of relationships never make it through summer. They break up before then, yeah. So if those reactive patterns become entrenched, uh, then the major task of summer is to find a way through the increasingly frequent stressors and difficulties to sort out and uh, discover a way to ease the emotional reactivity that goes on. And we're going to be talking about a lot of that. That's going to be a phrase I use a lot in this podcast about relationship is emotional reactivity. Uh, so, you know, uh, a settling or an easing of difficulty and emotional reactivity can mark the onset of autumn in the relationship. Kind of a comfortable plateau a period of time where the couple begins to enjoy the fruits of their life together. It's not that, you know, they don't have difficulties or they don't get irritated with each other. That's not totally absent. It's just that there's been a learning and an experiencing that has eased the toxic effects. Uh, a learning and an experiencing on how to process those issues so that uh, the fights or the disagreements are less frequent, less intense, and of shorter dur duration. And with the addition of knowing a way or having a plan on how to repair or mitigate the damage that emotional reactivity can cause. In the autumn, comes, you know, it, there can come a, a kind of depth knowledge, a deepening of that summer knowledge. Uh, uh, a depth knowledge of each other that is more than comfortable. It begins to feel like a treasured gift that helps each person feel like they have a soulmate. 
I often tell couples, you know, uh, I, I, uh, I don't believe you meet your soulmate. I really don't. I, I think you can meet a potential soulmate. And then you go to work through these seasons, you see. I don't think you can really achieve soulmate status until you're in the autumn of your relationship. And, you know, what do I mean by soulmate? Uh, I mean that you make yourself into a soulmate. Hopefully your partner's doing the same thing. And that's a deep level of commitment that approaches spiritual experience. Goes way beyond anything you imagined when you were back at the infatuation stage. Also, individuals may begin to hear the clock ticking. Yeah, that clock is always tipping. Kick ticking, excuse me. Clock is always ticking. Uh, time is running out. And you realize that at some point in your long-term relationship, that you're more than halfway through, that you're over the top of the roller coaster and you're on the downward run. And it changes your thinking. It alters your thinking. It has the potential to deepen the relationship because you know that uh, time is running out. There are things you want to do. There are places you want to go, not just physical places like travel, but where you want to go in your relationship. It can be a great motivator. If, uh, you know, if emotional reactivity does not come to resolution during autumn, early autumn, it can result in a very harsh winter where one person may decide to end the relationship because they, they perceive that it's not going anywhere, that it's dead, that it's dead in the cold of winter. And that maybe they should move south. Uh, so where the grass is going to be greener, it, it usually isn't, by the way. Uh, what, what's really going on there, I think, for most people who choose to do that is they haven't done the proper growth in the previous seasons. And because they haven't done the proper growth, they've become kind of bitter and angry. Yeah, I, I think of, uh, in contrast to the sweet couple, old couple, I think of, uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, the ventriloquist, Jeff Dunham, right? That character he has, Walter, you know, the sour, dour old man, right? That's how I see uh, people going into the winter of their relationship, a harsh winter, where they're still emotionally reactive. They hadn't resolved any of that stuff, and they haven't gotten any of the benefits of the summer and uh, autumn of their relationship. They're running out of time. But in healthy relationships, you know, the winter season brings a sensibility that there will be an end to the relationship, that the time on the clock is running out. So, you know, during that time, and, and I, I've personally experienced this, you know, I've personally experienced the beginning of the winter of long-term relationship. I regret that I didn't have another 10 or 15 years with my beloved to share the winter and maybe see another spring. But the individuals at this time have an opportunity to become very gentle with each other, very supportive, deeply attached in ways that are spiritual, deeply attached in ways that younger couples will look at them with amazement and wonder, just like I did when I was a teenager looking at that old couple 
walking hand in hand in amazement at the beauty and the depth and the texture and the richness of that relationship. In other ways, the couple aware of the truth that one of them is going to pass away before the other, they begin to struggle to come to terms with resolving the attachment they have for each other. This is where the importance of autonomy comes in. I am so grateful that I had uh, healthy autonomy in my marriage. It, it has definitely helped me navigate grief. I don't, I don't, uh, I know I can be on my own in all ways. Not just physically, I, of course I can cook, do the laundry, you know, tr tr I can take care of stuff. But I also, you know, have the autonomy or had the autonomy in my younger years to learn how to experience solitude, actually seek it out and practice solitude. And I'm so grateful for that because that's uh, pretty much, you know, what's gotten me through so far. It's been a tremendous help. So, you know, I believe this conceptualization of seasons of relationship can help us take stock of where we are in our life as individuals and where we are in our life as a couple. It has the potential to give us a compass when we're in earlier seasons, offering hope that, uh, you know, when we are having a rough patch, it need not become worse or spell out doom for the relationship or the individual, that there's hope, that there are ways to repair, not only repair, but enrich and make your relationship so much more wonderful than you could ever even imagine. I have to say, there have been days in the winter of my relationship that can't even compare to the infatuation I felt in the early days of Anne and I's relationship. Oh, those early days were wonderful. Don't get me wrong. I look back fondly on those days, full of uh, energy full of passion for each other, full of passion for the world. But in my later years, in my winter of my relationship, the depth of those things, the depth of those things cannot compare to what happened when we met when we were 19. So, you know, I, uh, I think uh, the seasons, viewing the seasons this way can help prepare us then savor each passing season of our beautiful and storied love affair with our beloved. Think about that. Think about maybe someday how it might be nice for you to walk with your beloved hand in hand as a very old couple and perhaps notice that younger people are paying attention and that they're amazed. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening today. I hope I gave you some interesting ways to look at your relationship and the seasons of your relationship. Check out other gentle counseling resources on YouTube. Uh, the channel there is Gentle Counseling. My Facebook page, which is Gentling, and my website, which is gentling.org. And as always, you know, if you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with other people. It's my greatest passion to uh, share this information and wisdom with as many people as possible so that other people can achieve uh, the kind of intimacy and uh, 
and beauty and enrichment of relationship that I've experienced in my life. In the next episode, we're going to take up the topic of how relationship can help us with our own, uh, help our own efforts at our own self-growth. A little bit more on that idea of autonomy. Until then, bye now.